Hey, Anna. Remember that time the first black woman went to Harvard Law School? What, like it's hard? that time in historical podcast i'm your host anna webb and i'm your host amanda webb and this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out on all their favorite moments in history and i feel like we just had a moment because you talked last yeah wait who starts the yeah who starts the episode (laughs) also it's my turn to have a gross voice this this time it's a, it goes around and round and round and round. My throat is so sore. It's It hurts to swallow anything. Mm-hmm. Hot or cold or room temp. It, we love I'm that. I'm in pain. We love that. So <laughs> it's fine. So apologies if I sound uh, a little gross. Mm-hmm. We couldn't have timed it better. I was, <laughs> I was sounding gross for your episode. You're sounding gross for my episode. We're Perfect. truly all in this together. Yeah, I was really afraid if we put off recording that I would just sound worse. So we're just going to power So here we it. are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that I think this leads me into my drink update. Indeed. If, if you'd like, because I am having tea. I'm having hot tea for my throat. I oh. assumed as much. I felt that was a fair. I do have water yeah. on deck, but it's not the main beverage. Right. Well, I'm drinking water. Water's sure. always on deck. It's always here. And I burnt my tongue just a little bit at lunch. So I can oh. feel it every time I drink a little bit of water. <laughs> not hard but enough that i can just just God. am aware of my tongue this you know? is riveting radio mm-hmm. um for riveting the radio um hey welcome to black history month on the podcast yes indeed it feels like we're already so far into february um, yeah because the episodes just kind of like january was long <laughs> And yeah. it just so happened that our episodes were like at the very beginning and the very end. So yeah. there's like, and now well February, February is also like this because it's a leap year. So we've got like a yeah, slightly right. longer month anyway. Yeah. But here we are. But here we are. And today we're going to talk about Mary Ann Shad Carey. Great. Um, probably I think the slightly lesser known figure of the of just of Black history in general. Um, speci- specifically of like the um, abolitionist Civil War era. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I don't really know much about her. I mean, I know the name when you said it, but yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. well educated. Learned about her from a puzzle. We love that. We right. love that energy. Yeah. So well, you heard about her from a yes. puzzle. You learned about her from your research. From, from my research, indeed. Right. Um. So shall shall we talk about her? Shall we get started? Let's, let's All right. Okay. So, Mary Ann Shad is born in Wilmington, Delaware, to Abraham Dora Shad and Harriet Burton Parnell on October 9th, 1823. She's the oldest of 13 children. Hey, that's too many kids. <laughs> Good in luck my and Godspeed. Good luck and Godspeed with that many children. That's so many kids. Mm-hmm. Um, her dad's family history is actually really interesting. Like, his grandfather was a Hessian soldier who came over during the wow. French and um, Indian War, which is, I think, part of the reason that they are a free black family. Right. Um, because he did not come over on the... He was his not family didn't come over mm-hmm, yeah. during the uh, transatlantic slave trade. Um, so he 
their family came over of their own volition. They were immigrants. Um, like, yes. Actually. Yes. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, the, yeah, I just thought that was very interesting that that's yeah. his family history. Uh, so she is born free, but they are in the slave state of Delaware. Mm-hmm. But Delaware was always kind of weirdly on the edge uh, throughout yeah. American history. So well, like they don't have like their agriculture is not the same. Exactly. So the whole like system that was set up for slave labor in particularly in the South, mm-hmm. not really the same uh, in, in, Delaware. in Delaware. Yeah. And they also weren't they were bordering with Pennsylvania, which was right. a free state. Right. And so like there was less of a kidnapping anybody who was black kind of mentality there so yeah yeah i mean other atrocities sure (laughs) yes true but uh no you're right i I don't know that people um who like aren't from the states and don't have that education of what it was like in slave states for people who just so happened to be born free mm-hmm. um because it was first of all so rare um but yeah there was a lot of like oh your skin is not white we'll just kidnap you then we're gonna like explode some way and now you, you into- are enslaved yeah. like exactly it- yeah yeah um so yeah, they live in Delaware. Her father's a shoemaker. He owns a shop in Wilmington. And then also later we'll have one set up in Westchester, Pennsylvania. That's interesting. He's also a business owner. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's cool. Yeah. So her parents are abolitionists, obviously. Yeah. Her father is a member of the American Anti-Slavery Society. And they are also conductors on the Underground Railroad. Yes. Yeah. So again, context, in case you're not American- the Underground Railroad was a system where abolitionists in the north, northern part of the United States at the time mm-hmm. would help enslaved people escape right. their enslavers and then make their way north into right. free like a states. system of mm-hmm. – it, there were, quote unquote, stops mm-hmm. that people would make and um, – yeah. And the conductors of sympathetic people. Yeah, the conductors were the people who helped them organize from place to place. So she grew up her whole life with escaped enslaved people getting out of that situation and coming through her home. Yeah, so that was you know instilled in her from a very young age. Mm -hmm. Um, at some point, Delaware bans the education of African American children because they were still a slave state. Um, Yeah. And so her family moves to Pennsylvania in 1833 so that she can go to school and so that their other children can go to school. And that's when they settle um, in and around Westchester, Pennsylvania. Right. She begins attending a Quaker boarding school. They actually, Mm. she grew up Catholic, but that's where they end up sending her is to a Quaker boarding school um, where she stays until 1839. And then after she graduates, she spends the next, like, 12 or so years as a teacher. So that's what she starts doing when she's fresh out of school. She founds a black 
or a school for black children in Eastchester, PA. So it's all mm. Chester, Pennsylvania. There's Westchester <laughs> yeah. and there's Eastchester. Right. Um, so she founds a school for specifically for black children. Um, over this time, she also ends up teaching in Norristown, a little bit in New York, and a little bit back in Delaware, as she is able to. So she sort of travels the area, at, and so does her family with their like work. They all kind of sure. work in that part of the country. In an article in the North Star in 1848, Frederick Douglass, who published that newspaper, asks his readers what was needed to be done to improve life for African Americans. He said, like, write in. What do you think? Right. Uh, she's 25 at the time, and she writes a response, and one thing she says is we should do more and talk less. Just generally. She goes yeah. to a lot of these, like, meetings with her father, and she's always very disappointed by the number of, like, resolutions that pass and all yeah. this, but then very We're just going around in circles. Yeah. Nothing's happening, right? Yeah, which was a big problem for the abolitionists before the Civil War began. Well, like, it there's was all, always going to be a period of time before the action begins mm-hmm. that starts to feel sort of stagnant in any kind of social movement, I think. Yes. Because there's always going to be more than one school of thought. Like there are going to yeah, be and people we'll talk who are more like, about that in a little let's bit. go yeah. in guns blazing. And then there are people who are like, we have to lay a framework. Otherwise no one's going to take us seriously. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to get anything accomplished. So and also, there can be kind of a stalemate as those two things start to kind of, come mm-hmm. together before the action actually starts happening also america is very politically fraught on this subject well, yeah, at the time of course. um there's so much like okay we're gonna do this and these states are gonna be free but to appease everybody else we're gonna do this and All so right. like it's frustrating um anyway he really uh likes her letter so he publishes yeah. her letter in the north star um and that's the first time she's like published and that she sounds kind of like Frederick Douglass is kind of gal. Yeah, yeah. It very much influences what she will kind of do through the rest of her life. All right. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act passes. Mm -hmm. And this is an act that says that enslaved people who escape to free states can be and by law should, quote unquote, should be returned to their enslavers because... They were viewed as property, and so people wanted, you know, people said, well, I want my property returned, and that was the mentality. Ugh. Uh, This act then also made it much, much easier for already free people to be taken and sold into slavery, because then slave catchers, which became a, a career, a job that people had, would take anyone, right? It does not matter what your family history is. And very rarely will you have any sort of documentation. Now, her family was maybe an exception. They had lived there for quite some time. Um, and right, would yeah. have likely had more, like, they had more, like, legal standing than some other folks right. would. But still, after the F- Fugitive Slave Act, it became very difficult for freed black people to participate in, like, the Underground Railroad because there right. was a concern of them being caught. And let's not act like the people capturing and kidnapping these people wouldn't, you know, lie, make things up, Mm -hmm. pretend that they are someone they're not. Right. Just because they can, Mm -hmm. especially if they don't have a ton of documentation on their family. Yeah. So after 
the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, Mary and her family moved to Windsor in Ontario, Canada, which is just across the border from Detroit. And after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, there was one of the largest migrations of African-American people in American history into Canada. Right. um, Because a lot of people then became concerned for their own safety and... Part of the Underground Railroad after the Fugitive Slave Act becomes the goal is now not to get you into the free states. It's to get it's you to, to get Canada. You to Canada. Mm-hmm. So actually them moving up there is also helpful because now they can be facilitate that for others in Canada. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of people move up that way. Um, while she's in Windsor, she creates one of the first racially integrated schools in recorded history um now how how um sort of legal and above board that all was is the question but like you know well sure um so she gets the health uh, help of the american missionary association which was an abolitionist um Mm -hmm. group and official public education in ontario was not open to black students at the time but there was not a lot of legislation about private schooling, so it allowed her sure. to create this kind of school. Um, so she offers daytime <laughs> classes for children and then evening classes for adults. Because, oh, again, a lot oh. of those people who escape to the north have been have received no education in their right, life. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, now, this is where some of the abolitionists really disagree. This is a big yeah. split in thought. Is the idea of emigration Mm. which was the goal should be to no longer be in the united states right right? yeah um a lot of abolitionists said no we need to stay in the united states and fight to make it safe for our home yeah Mm -hmm. and a lot of other people said at least right now it's we can't be here and so the goal is to get out right right um, so she was an advocate for emigration. Her family emigrated, right? So right. it makes a certain amount of sense. In 1852, she publishes a pamphlet called A Plea for Immigration or Notes of Canada West. And normally you'll just hear it called Notes of Canada West. The full title yeah, The is, name is longer than that. <laughs> yeah. The full title is A Plea for Immigration or Notes of Canada West in its moral, social, and political aspect with su- suggestions respecting... Mexico, West Indies, and Vancouver's Island for the information of colored immigrants. That the full title. The title is as long as a pamphlet. <laughs> Certainly. So typically you just hear this called Notes of Canada West. Yeah, I, um, I get why. And her, the idea, like the pamphlet was, here are the benefits of emigrating and here's what Canada, this western part of Canada could offer has us. for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like her first kind of published piece outside of that letter in the newspaper and then she begins a career of of publication well at least a a period of of being a publisher so Mm. in 1853 mary begins publishing the provincial freedman which is an anti-slavery newspaper um the paper's slogan is devoted to anti-slavery temperance and general literature Mm. which i enjoyed (laughs) um its first issue is published on march 24th 18 53 and it runs weekly for about four years um the only reason they stop publishing it is that she just stops being able to afford it Mm. basically because it's expensive to publish publishing this paper 
makes her the first black woman publisher in all of North America. Wow. And the first woman publisher in Canada at all. The first woman to be published in Canada. Canada, what the heck? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that wild? That is wild. I think that that's such an interesting fact about her. Like, if you Google her, that's going to be, like, the first thing you see. Yeah. That I'm fact. curious how many other just women publishers there were in North America at the time. Like, I wonder where she falls on that. I'm yeah. just curious. I, in, you know. in America, the United States of America, by yeah. this point, there had started to be some women publishers. Mm-hmm. So sure. that, that's I why she doesn't get the... More than um, anything. The total title, you know what I sure, mean? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. I, I just mean, because there can't have been that many, that's all. Right, right. She can't publish this on her own initially, because there would have been a lot of pushback of, yeah, of course. it being a woman's name on the paper exclusively. Yeah. Yeah. So she originally also publishes it with, I didn't note their names, but another, uh, another black man and then a white um anti-slavery uh pastor or something Mm, like uh, an abolitionist priest uh so and all of their names are on it for several years and then eventually she changes it to just have her name on it even though they are still like involved in the publication she's doing most of the work exactly um (laughs) but to get it started and to get people to like actually buy into it she needed other people's names on it so yeah she spends the next few years traveling Canada and back in the United States lecturing about abolition and emigration, right? And trying to increase the subscription for her paper. Mm-hmm. And she also is working with a lot of freed people trying to, like, help them get on their feet or sure. help, like, come to Canada and work on my paper, like, that kind of mm-hmm. deal. When her family had lived in the United States and they were living in Westchester, that's very close to Pennsylvania. And so they were... It is Pennsylvania. Try or, oh my gosh, to Philadelphia. <laughs> wow, I'm losing my mind. Very close to Philadelphia. Um, and her family was very involved in the abolitionist scene in Philadelphia, which was quite large. Like, that was a big yeah. center for the abolitionist movement. And she wants to participate in the 1855 Philadelphia Colored Convention. But women had not been permitted to attend that ever before. Mm. And they had to debate whether to let her sit as a delegate in the convention at all. And it was very, it was not only controversial because she was a woman, it was also controversial because she advocated for immigration. Immigration. And Mm. not a lot of people agreed with that. And she is admitted to be a delegate by a margin of 15 votes. Wow. I don't know how long the voting pop like how large the voting populace was, yeah. but still, like it was still. it was quite close. Um according to Frederick Douglass's paper, she gave a speech at the convention advocating for immigration, but she was so well received that they voted to give her 10 more minutes <laughs> to speak. <laughs> Cuz she was like very convincing. Encore, encore. Yeah. Her presence at the convention though is it was not really recorded in the minutes. Probably because she was a woman, and so they just let her be there, but didn't, like, record it. So the only real sure. recording we have okay. of it is Frederick Douglass's recording of it. Sure. Wow. I know. I know. In 1856, she marries Thomas Carey, who's a barber from Toronto, who had helped and done some work on the provincial freedmen. Ah. They end up having two children together, a daughter named Sarah and a son named Linton. 
which is a word I feel like it's stuck in my mouth. Linton. Because you want to say like Lincoln Litton or something. Or Litton or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, this I found very interesting and I read it and I went, oh, I knew that. And didn't, had never made the connection between these oh, people. Okay. In 1858, her brother Isaac Shad hosts a gathering in his home for John Brown as he plans oh. the raid on Harper's Ferry. Oh. Which I knew about that meeting at Isaac Shad's house. Like, that's part of the John yeah. Brown story. Right. And I had just forgotten about it entirely until I read this and I went, oh my gosh, I didn't, I hadn't made Same that Shad connection family. whatsoever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Later in 1861, she will publish a piece called Voice from Harper's Ferry, which was a tribute to the raid, even though it was unsuccessful. So yeah. that, that little connection sure I thought was, was very interesting. But in the end, hugely important to world. Hey, I went the there for the first time. I still haven't been. I didn't get to go. It was very cool. I, I couldn't believe someday. I had never been. Or if I had, I was very little and didn't remember. It's because it's which is entirely way possible. the heck over in the panhandle. Like, yeah, all the way too, on the other side of the state. It, from where we grew up, yeah. yeah. It's not too bad, but yeah, it, it was a little bit of a trek. Also, yeah. just a hot tip from, from me to you, my friend. It was hot there. when Because <laughs> a lot of the things you go to see are just outside. It's like rubble. Mm-hmm. of and like old buildings so you're outside the whole time with like no cover and it is hot in the summer <laughs> just fyi just a heads <laughs> sorry. up sorry heads up for tangent. all you tourists out there <laughs> um she was a member of the chatham vigilance committee which helped to make sure that freed people who escaped to canada could not be returned to the united states mm. Her husband dies in 1860. I couldn't really find anything about what happened to him. Well, like, I don't know if he was unwell or maybe he was older than her. I'm, I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. he dies in 1860. And about a year later, her she and her children move back into the United States just as the Civil War is beginning. Right. So she lives in Indiana during the Civil War. And she serves as a recruiting officer for the Union Army. Specifically oh. trying to get black men to enlist in the Union Army. Yeah, so that's the work that she does during the whole Civil War, is she is a recruiting officer. Cool. Well, I mean, not cool because I don't believe in war, but interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After the Civil War ends, she moves to Washington, D.C., and she teaches at public schools and continues to lecture while she's nice. there. She speaks before the House Judiciary Committee to advocate for the 14th and the 15th Amendments. Notably, while speaking on the 15th Amendment, she does say this should also apply to black women. But, you know, here we are. You know, here we are. Um, Speaking of which, she is also an advocate for women's suffrage. So, you know, she's got a very strong passion for advocacy, clearly. And continues to work for black people during Reconstruction, but she also then starts focusing her energy on the women's suffrage movement, which is just Mm -hmm. starting to build in America Mm -hmm. at this time. Mm -hmm. So she is like a contemporary of Susan B. Anthony and that whole first wave of women of the um, women's suffrage movement in America. Right. So she's a member of the Women's Suffrage Association. She speaks at their 1878 convention 
convention. She's fully in that world as well. Yeah, despite the fact that the movement was not very intersectional in general. But Yes. <laughs> yeah. But she was one of the people pushing for it to be. Right. Somebody mm-hmm. had to be there doing that work. Mm-hmm. She uh, continues to write for newspapers. She writes for the National Era and the People's Advocate as she does all of her other work. Um, in 1880, she helps to found the Colored Women's Progressive franchise, which was just a group to help black women with, like, get more opportunities and better themselves. The word franchise, like, threw me off. I was like, what is that? I don't know. It's just what (laughs) it was called. Yeah. And then sometime in this time as well, she enrolls in Harvard, Harvard Law School specifically. And she graduates with a law degree in 1883 at 60 years old. Wow. Isn't that amazing? amazing? She was the first black female student at, in Harvard's law program. And wow. she was only the second black woman in the United States to earn a law degree. Wow. And That's she amazing. is at one 60. of the... Wow. Yeah. She, she continues to teach and speak for the rest of her life, but she also has a law practice for a few wow. years. And so she is also one of the black lawyers, first black lawyers in America at all. Right. Right. Yeah. I missed the word ones. first the first time I said that, but. <laughs> you did. Yeah. yeah. I, I, <laughs> it took I, me I a minute it. to comprehend what you were saying. Yeah. Because I missed you did a, word miss a word entirely. Yeah. But I got it. <laughs> yeah. So she spends the rest of her life teaching speaking practicing law there's not a lot recorded about her law practice but she did have one so Mm. yeah um she dies on june 5th 1893 from stomach cancer and she is interned at columbian harmony cemetery in dc wow yeah now i had a couple of other notes here outside of her life because it was a couple other things that i thought were just like interesting to Mm -hmm. how we remember her right So, the Archives of Ontario holds a collection of records about her life and work while she was living in Ontario. Hmm. And I think that it's very unlikely that we would remember her as well as we do without this particular conservation effort. Sure. So, the records were acquired from Ed and Maxine Robbins in 1974. They were demolishing an old building on their property that had once been the Shad Carey home, her and her wow. husband's house. And wow. they found a ton of records of her life in the rubble. They like huh. s- saved them from the devil demolition. They were cleaning things up. Mm-hmm. And- wow. Yeah. They found like her letters from her lifetime, the business records of the um provincial freedmen. Sure. Like a bunch of her travel records from when she lived there. Like all of her work in Canada was recorded and they think that they just left them in the home when they moved back to the united states it was just like something she didn't bother to take with her yeah or she had tucked it away somewhere and yeah 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 so um after they found it they loaned it to the archives of ontario in 1986 for microfilming and then they were also cleaned and treated to repair the damage of all the, that many de- years and also and, the demolition. Yeah. yeah. The original records were returned to the Robbins family and they held them until 2022 and then donated the originals to the archives. So wow. now the originals are also held at the archives. 
That's so interesting that the originals weren't put there until 2022. Yeah. That's wild. But the family clearly cared about um, preserving them because they saved them in the first place. So I think it makes sense that they let them keep them. Well, could you imagine, like, finding something like that and being like, why doesn't everyone know about this person? Yeah. Obviously, there are people who probably did know a a decent amount about her, but Mm -hmm. there wasn't much to read about her Mm -hmm. in... between the time of her death and the time that they found this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. you can go by word of mouth only for so long, I guess. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Like, so I was reading about her and, you know, she's a little bit of a lesser known figure in history. So there's not a ton recorded about her. So I was reading on a couple of different websites. And when I was on her Wikipedia, because that's usually where I start, I read through and I got all the way to the bottom and I was like, oh, this little section was down at the bottom i went oh Mm -hmm. that's why we know about her at all like this preserve preservation of her records i i think after these were published and people read about her they then found a bunch of other stuff about her you know like the records of her going to harvard and like that kind of thing started to be like they started looking for her through history and then found more and more records of her life and i'm sure people who were um from the areas maybe where she did her work probably knew some as well but again like that sort of tradition of telling people about someone like this only really lasts so long if you don't have documentation to Mm -hmm. say look what the all of the things this Mm -hmm. person did right yeah yeah that's amazing um and i put that before i talked about some of these other accolades because they all come after that 1974 discovery sure which makes me think we really didn't know a ton about her until they found these records you know right yeah so in 1976 her home in dc was placed on the national registry of historic places specifically as a national historic landmark Rightfully so. Yeah. So there's like 90,000 buildings on the National Registry of Historic yeah. Places. It's, but the specifically the National Historic Landmarks are of significant historical right. significance. It's a and, yeah, harder list on. to get onto. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's like only like 20% of the homes on or of the buildings on the registry are specifically landmarks. Landmarks. Yeah. Right. Um, and that, yeah, that happened in 1976. So it would have wow. been just after the discovery of those mm-hmm. records was it was yeah. that finally recognized that building. Um, and that also means that a lot of the stuff I read and learned about her was from the natural National Park Service. Um, oh sure, a lot they of the articles researched it. Mm-hmm, and, a lot of the yeah. articles I read about her I found specifically on the National Park Service website. Huh. Yeah. Uh, in 1987, the National Women's History Project design- designated her a National Women's History Month honoree. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, she is designated a person of national historical significance in Canada, huh. as well as in America. You know, like sh- her yeah. legacy is very relevant in Ontario as well. Right. Uh, I read somewhere that she was on like a study guide for their citizenship tests in like 2009 oh, or something like that. Like a huh. question about her occurred. Wow, cool. Mm-hmm. And then in 1998, she was inducted to the National Women's Hall of Fame, which was another place I found a lot of information about her because she's sure. a part of one of like 300 women in yeah, the National Women's Hall many. of Fame. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. in the grand scheme of things, yeah. there aren't that many. Yep. Wow, well, she's so, that's so Marianne interesting. Shad Carey. I yeah, I 
Sawyer got this puzzle that was like figures from the women's suffrage movement. Right. And it had in the puzzle like a informational poster with little like blurbs about each person on the poster. And I was sitting there going, huh, I don't know who I want to do for my first Black History Month um, person. And Sawyer had started this puzzle and was reading and went, oh, this first person I read about actually would be perfect. (laughs) And it was her. And I was like, oh, that's great. Yeah. Let me learn all about her. She's very interesting. So, yeah, she's very interesting. That's cool. I I always think with people like this, like you were saying that we... Um, didn't have a ton of documentation about them. I, I always wonder, like, what was their personality like? Because mm-hmm. people weren't noting that, really. Yeah. Because they weren't actively being like, this is a person of great historical significance. Right, while right. they were interacting with them. So I just always wonder when mm-hmm. we, we don't get that information about, like, their childhood or... Um, mm-hmm you know, the things they liked to do outside of their work. Like, I just wonder what their personalities were Mm -hmm. like. I did see it noted several times that she was very outspoken. Well, I believe that. Like, you had to have been to do (laughs) all that. Sure, of course. She insisted on, you know, being at that Philadelphia convention and, like, that kind of thing. She went to law school in her late 50s that like right right i think well sure there are lots of things we could conclude i just mean like what what would the people who knew her uh say say about her Mm -hmm. right that kind of thing i just always find that interesting and then kind of sad that we know that about some people but not others yeah not everyone (laughs) i think about that a lot when we're research searching things and we it's like oh i didn't find quite as much about this person but still worth talking about yeah yeah well, she was really interesting. Good choice. Yeah, I liked learning about her. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I have no brain power to think of what I will be talking about next time. Um, once I am recovered from whatever this like weird sinus thing is that I'm dealing with, yeah. I will have a better idea. <laughs> Still Black but, History uh, Month, though, so it will yes, be another Black Month. Yes, we will continue Black historical History figure. Month. I just have not made a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anybody has suggestions or anybody in particular that they would like to learn about, I'd love to hear them. Um, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. Sorry, this is the most talking I've done since the early whole this episode. Yep. Um, you can also, uh, what do I say next? You can also find us on Instagram at RTT pod. We're on threads under the same handle. Um, you can find us on Facebook if you want, but I don't know why you would want to because it's Facebook and we would love it if you would leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you would like to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. Oh, I really had to power through that. You crushed it. (laughs) So sorry. A good start to Black History Month, I think. Mm -hmm. I think so. All right. So until next time. Remember that time. Mm